Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, welcome to Talk Money. I am Jim Shoemaker, where we talk about everything financial. And for today's program, a frequent guest and friend of ours, Kurt Zarnowski, is here. Today, to finish our discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago about Social Security, the question today is, how and when do I take the benefit, and can spouses, divorce spouses, widow widowers collect benefits? What are the rules and the regulations? He's going to answer our questions for us. In the second half of today's program, we have two very special guests from the Neighborhood Christian Center, Effie Johnson, President and CEO, and Kiki Hall, Director of Marketing, with the mission of, uh, here it is, the mission, the mission for them, Guiding those in need towards stability and sustainability through compassionate, Christ-centered ministries and empowerment programs. You must want, just want to find out more of how you can help. It's the Neighborhood Christian Center. It's about loving people and loving our city. From our Did You Know files, the Social Security Administration, since I've got Kurt on the phone coming up, it's estimated the Social Security shortfall today between the future taxes anticipated being collected and the future Future benefits expected to be paid over the next 75 years. We only got a shortfall, Greg, of only about 13.2 trillion dollars. But now keep in mind, Medicare has got the same problem. They've got a shortfall. They say they'll run out of money by 2026. We're going to talk to Kurt about that. But here's what they're telling us they're going to do. From the Medicare administration and the Social Security Administration, they're going to reduce the benefit, 17% possibly, or increase the payroll tax, both the Social Security payroll tax and the Medicare payroll tax, just a little bit, uh, you know, a little adjustment here, a little tweak here. They'll keep it running. They're going to pay us. We know where it goes. It's just we got to figure out how much that affects us. We're going to find out today if that does affect us. 25%. That's one out of four of all Americans that reach age 65. Well, that's, you know, that's a lot of folks will live at least another 25 years. That's to age 90. So that's why we want to find out if this tweaking that they're going to be doing, is that going to be enough to last? Well, the National Bureau of Economic Research has recently published that we're in the second. This is the National Bureau of Economic Research. Now, I know you can Google this and you'll find out all kind of theories about this, but this is from the Bureau of Economic Research. So it's, I take this as pretty good. Recently published that we are in the second longest economic expansion in U.S. history based on the data that they would track all the way back to 1854. This expansion as of 6.30 of this year, that's June the 30th, will be its ninth year, full nine years in length. Well, that's a long time for a bull market. Many people are saying it's about over. Nah, don't think so. Stay with us because we've got a lot coming up. Coming up. 
Kurt Zarnowski. Everything you want to know about Social Security, all your questions, and Effie Johnson and Kiki Hall with the Neighborhood Christian Center, loving people and loving our city. Remember, you can listen to this program and other programs again simply by going to the iTunes and searching for Shoemaker Financial. If you've got questions and you'd like to have them answered on Talk Money, just email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. This is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker is a registered representative and investment advisor representative of Securian Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer, member of FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securian Financial Services is affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome back. My guest today, Kurt Zarnowski, frequent guest, and you guys love him because he answers your questions about Social Security. He is the president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting. Welcome to the program, sir. Hey, Jim. Good morning. Good to be back on. Well, let me ask you a question. You know, we get so much information coming from people asking questions, and one of the questions that, that literally has come up is, are we going to run out of money? So I did a little research for the monologue, and the Medicare and Social Security Administration says that they're going to run out of money about 75 years from now. There's $13.2 million shortfall. So everybody says, okay, if they're going to run out of money, what's going to happen? Am I going to be able to get my benefits? Can you clear that up for us just in a real quick thought process? Sure, absolutely. And, and I think the important thing for folks to remember is you hear this talk about Social Security going bust, going bankrupt, and running out of money leads people to mistakenly think that at some point there's not going to be any money there whatsoever. Keep in mind, Jim, Social Security's primary source of income, payroll tax dollars paid by folks like you, employers, employees, people like me who are self-employed. So absent a complete and total collapse of the United States economy, Social Security is always going to have a revenue stream of some sort. The question is, looking down the road, is that revenue stream thought to be enough to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised. And 2018 Social Security Trustees Report came out last month. And in that report, the trustees project that Social Security is thought to have enough money on hand to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised through the end of the year 2034. But beginning in 2035, while it's not projected to have enough money to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised, it is thought to have enough money to cover 79% of the benefits that have been promised. So, so I think it's always important to put some context on this. We're not talking about a system that's going to have zero money whatsoever. We're not talking about having to close a 100% funding gap. We're talking about how over the course of the next 18 years or so, Congress can come up with some solutions that close this 21% funding gap. So as I always like to say, paraphrasing Mark Twain, I think reports of Social Security's demise are greatly exaggerated. There's always <laughs> going to be a revenue stream. The question is, is that revenue stream thought to be enough to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised? And without some changes, it won't be. So the issue is, we have some time. And with Social Security, as I like to remind folks, it's money coming in, it's money going out. So it's not altogether different from a person's individual situation. At the end of the month, you don't have enough money to cover all of your bills. Either you got to bring more money in or pay less money out. 
And that's basically the issue with Social Security. You can close that 21% funding gap either by bringing more money in or by cutting or spending less money. You know, you close the gap by increasing revenue. Who are you hurting? Well, or impacting anyway, younger folks, employers. You close that gap simply by cutting benefits. Who are you impacting? Well, old folks like me. So I think in the end, you're going to see a blend, a mix of some income increases, some slowdowns on the outflow side, but Social Security is never going to be out of money altogether. So people should not be falling into that trap. Well, I think it's important. I mean, you do such a good job. Our sage, Kurt Zornowski, president and founder of Zornowski Consulting, has finally laid it to rest. It's not running out. We just make some adjustments and figure that out. So, all right, Kurt, here's the question. Here's people have said, okay, if I can a spouse, we know yes, divorce spouses and or widow or widowers collect benefits from a deceased partner. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, to reinforce a message we deliver every time we're on the show with you, Jim, Social Security is really a family protection program. And most people think about retirement benefits for somebody who's worked and paid into the system, him or herself, and we discuss that all the time. But it's important to remind listeners, as I said, it's a family protection program. There are benefits available to spouses, divorced spouses, and survivors. And uh, children as well. We've talked about child's benefits in the past. Now, with Social Security, what they call spousal benefits, that's what's payable while the primary worker is still alive. And as I always say, the program's absolutely, totally gender neutral, meaning it works either way. But for purposes of our discussion today and ease of illustration, we'll assume it's the husband who has been the higher earner. The wife has been the lower earner. But again, it works equally well the other way. But you've got a husband whose work paid into the system. The wife will assume has not, or if if they've worked, has not earned as much. Then Social Security will pay spousal benefits to that wife, an amount equal to 50% of the husband's full retirement age amount. And then here's the key point, Jim, or the wife's own one amount to the other, whichever one is higher. You don't collect both. Same rules apply for divorced spouses, but with divorced spousal benefits, the marriage needs to have lasted 10 years prior to the divorce, but that 10-year duration of marriage requirement, the ex-spouse cannot be married, but Social Security will pay divorced spousal benefits to that ex-wife equal to 50% of the ex-husband's full retirement age amount or the ex-wife's own, whichever one is higher, not both at once. And then the news is actually better in terms of survivor benefits. That's the amount that will be paid if the husband has passed away. And here the basic rate for the surviving widow or a divorced widow is not going to be 50% of the husband's full retirement age amount. No, it's going to be 100% of what the husband happened to be collecting at the time he passed away. And this is an important reminder for folks. We've talked in the past. If you start right at your full retirement age, you get 100% of your benefit. But if you opt to defer collecting past full retirement age, your monthly amount is increased. You accrue what are called delayed retirement credits. Your benefit grows by 8% per year for as long as you don't collect, right up until age 70. And so if you talked about you delay, it means your payment is going to be higher once you start to collect it. But it also means that in survivorship cases, The husband, again, in this example, by having delayed 
the widow receives 100% of what he was collecting at the time he passed away. So by delaying, not only means the husband's own benefit was higher than it would have been had he started earlier, it also means the survivor payment that goes to the widow is going to be higher than it would have been had the husband started collecting at an earlier age. So with the husband being alive, benefits are based on 50% of the full retirement age amount, not necessarily 50% of what he was actually collecting, he is actually collecting. But in survivorship cases, widows, widowers, divorced widows, divorced widows, it's based on 100% of what the deceased had been receiving at the time he passed away. Tremendous uh, benefit that needs... uh, people need to remember as part of the Social Security Family Protection Plan. Absolutely. Now, again, we put that together. If you want more information, just just send us an email, talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll get you some of this information if you'd like it. And also remind you that just simply go to the iTunes and search in Shoemaker Financial to listen to this program again. If you're just trying to put all this together, Social Security is complicated. Kurt's the expert. So, Kurt, let me ask you this. one of the questions that, that came in that we hear, and I guess it's because people are seeing this happening to them more or at least knowing of people that have lost or had some identity theft. Maybe not lost, but identity theft, where it's a problem, somebody's stolen all of their you know Social Security number, the credit cards. Can you get a new number? That's the question. Uh, is it possible to get a new number today? And, uh, Jim, the, the, the good news is the answer is yes. Now, being as old as I am and having worked with Social Security for as long as I had, you know, in the early, early days, the answer was no. Even if you'd had your identity stolen, Social Security would not issue you a new Social Security number. You know, because think about it. Most of the time, the mischief, if you will, involved in identity theft has nothing to do with Social Security benefit payments. It has to do with taking over bank accounts or, or different things like that. But Social Security number, when it was created, it was created solely to help people receive retirement benefits under the Social Security program. What has happened, though, is that the Social Security number has grown to become a de facto national identifier. And so Social Security numbers have been drawn into a whole bunch of areas that were never envisioned when the program was started nearly 83 years ago. So Social Security, fortunately, did change its policy, and if someone has been a victim of identity theft, Social Security is willing to issue that person a new Social Security number. Now, here's the thing, though. person, in order to get a new number issued, will need to provide documentation as to the, and again, I use the term mischief, that has been, and mischief may be understating, obviously, but they need to provide documentation, reports of police police reports or, or other things like that, you need to distinguish this from a situation where somebody simply loses their wallet. And they may have been carrying their social security card, which they should never do, but they lose their wallet. They run down to social security and say, I need a new social security number. Well, absent documentation that they have been harmed somehow by misuse of their social security number, Social Security is not going to issue a new number in that circumstance where you just lose your wallet. But if somebody has indeed had their their number misused, they've uh, had their identity assumed by someone else, yes, Social Security will also, in those circumstances, issue somebody a new Social Security number. But it's also important to remind folks, that isn't the end of the uh, the process. 
with that new number, then you need to be reaching out to all those other um, companies or banks or uh, government programs you may be involved in in making sure they have your new number. And one other point, Jim, besides identity theft, uh, Social Security will issue a new Social Security number to someone who's been a victim of domestic violence. Also, a, a change in um, agency policy oh, in the past 15 years or so ago. Same type of uh, situation, need to provide documentation uh, of the, um, the situation, and, and in those cases, Social Security will issue a, a new number. But, you know, as I said right at the beginning, initially Social Security wouldn't issue a new number, but I'm pleased to see that the, the policy has evolved, and in those cases of identity theft or domestic violence, people can get a new number from Social Security. I understand from a, this is a trivial comment, but I, I read somewhere that there were over 475 million or 400, over four, 400 million or something, 450 million new numbers that had been issued, and they had more numbers to go before the system would, I mean, they could go three or four more generations. So there's no fear of them running out of a number. Is that what No you? fear of running out of numbers for a good long time. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, if you just tuned in, my guest, Kurt Zarnowski, president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting. We talk about Social Security when Kurt's on the air, and he does a phenomenal job. And I guess the question is, Kurt, it comes in, all the time, I made a mistake. Can I start over? Can I change my mind? And what's the length of time? If I decided to take Social Security today, I turned 62, is there a, can I do over or am I done? Great question, Jim. Get it all the time. So let's go back in time a little bit, though, probably 10, 12 years or so ago. Now, Social Security has always had in place a process whereby if somebody changes their mind about collecting benefits, they have been able to undo what they've done. Now, technically, the term is withdrawing your application for benefits. And you do that by filling out, you're going to be surprised to hear this, Jim, a government form. <laughs> There's a form for everything, but it's a Social Security 521 form to dazzle you with my... There you go. Process. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. But you fill out this request for withdrawal, and for Social Security to grant that withdrawal request, you need to do one thing and one thing only. You simply repaid any benefits you may have collected. Now, the key thing was Social Security never charged interest on that. You simply repaid the principal. And when the check had cleared, it was as if that initial application had never occurred. You were free to reapply at a later date. Now, as I mentioned, let's go back in time, Mr. Peabody, Sherman and Peabody in the Wayback Machine. Mm. What had been occurring 10, 15 years or so ago was a recognition that because Social Security never charged interest, you could have a situation where somebody, for example, applies for reduced benefits at age 62. Collect, 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 collect. And then they had the right at age 70, for example, although you didn't have to wait to 70, to walk into Social Security at that point and say, I changed my mind. They could withdraw the application that they had filed eight years ago. And again, for Social Security to grant that withdrawal request, they simply needed to repay the benefits they had received. They would do that. And the key thing was, again, Social Security never charged interest. So the person would go in eight years later, withdraw the application, repay the principal, if you peel back the onion a little bit, you see that, in essence, they had received an interest-free loan mm. from Social Security during this eight-year period. 
So the Commissioner of Social Security at the, the end of 2010 thought that was just not the right thing. So since the end of 2010, the rules have been, yes, you still can withdraw your application if you change your mind, pay back any benefits you've received without interest being charged, and then be free to reapply at a later date. But you need to do so within 12 months of collecting benefits. You have basically one year in which you can change your mind, and you can do this once in a lifetime. So you have somebody who starts to collect at age 62. Well, basically, they've got a year in which they can change their mind, go to Social Security, fill out that withdrawal request form, pay back the money received, again, no interest charged, and then be free to reapply at a later date. But I want to remind folks about this. We always talked about the importance of knowing what your full retirement age is. What the rules say is if you have reached your full retirement age, you have the right to go to Social Security still and ask to have your payments voluntarily suspended. And if you ask to have your payments suspended after full retirement age, you're going to be in the business of accruing delayed retirement credits. For each month you don't collect growing your payment, two-thirds percent per month, 8% per year, right up until age 70. So you have a situation, Jim, where somebody applies for benefits at age 62, collects that reduced amount, collect, 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 hits full retirement age and says, oh, shoot, I made a mistake. I need a higher payment amount going forward. Well, because they've been collecting for more than 12 months, they no longer have the ability to withdraw the application, repay any benefits, and reapply. But it's important to remind folks that at full retirement age, as I said, that person can go to Social Security, ask to have payments suspended, and they'll then begin to grow that admittedly lower amount, not their full retirement age amount, by that two-thirds percent for each month that they don't collect right up until age 70. But another important reminder is this. Since April of 2016, and we talked about this in the show, the rules say that if you ask to have your payments suspended, Social Security is also required to suspend the benefits to anyone and everyone else who might be collecting on your record. So that situation I talked about, somebody starts early, they hit full retirement age, they decide they want to suspend. Well, if they've got a spouse who's collecting spousal benefits or any kids who are collecting on their account, well, if they ask to have their payments suspended, Social Security will suspend those other benefits as well. So that voluntary suspension may or may not be the right thing for somebody to do. But at full retirement age, it is an option, particularly, and again, you don't have to repay any benefits, but if someone has collected for more than that 12-month period, they can't withdraw the application, but if they're at or after full retirement age, they do have the possibility of requesting voluntary suspension as a way to grow their payments going forward. Kurt, I want to. We got to take a break. We're going to come back. I've got one more question for you, and it's one of those questions that I think people think they know, but they're not sure. And I'm not sure that I could give you a definitive answer. Creditors is my Social Security benefit. That's the question. We'll get it when we come back. Social Security benefit subject to creditors, private creditors, or what? So stay with us because you're listening to Kurt Zornowski, and he has given us all you ever wanted to know about Social Security and then some. And it's always great to have him on the air. We'll be 
be back in just a minute. Stay with us. This is Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. We've been talking with Kurt Zernowski, and he is still telling us that we can change our mind. There's some rules and regulations. You need to know what they are. We've also found out that you can get a new number if there's been domestic violence or identity theft. You can go in and file for a new number. There's a lot of specifics there. You need to know the rules and the regulations. And I've got a question. It's the last question we're going to be able to answer. And, Kurt, we're going to definitely always have you back because there's about four or five more that we wanted to cover. But this is the question. Here we go. Person's got getting their Social Security benefits. Is it subject to private creditors? Can that money be... Uh, garnished, or, or if you file for bankruptcy and you're getting your Social Security, what happens? Jim, I'm going to dazzle you again. <laughs> you always do. Section 207 of the Social Security <laughs> Act that says Social Security payments are not subject to garnishment by private creditors. So you owe credit card money or different bills to private creditors? No, they cannot garnish your Social Security benefits. But it's important to distinguish that from. Social security situations where social security payments can be garnished, and these are alimony or child support situations pursuant to a legitimate court order. So in that type of situation, alimony child support with a court order, that court order gets submitted to social security, and they will withhold a portion of a person's benefits in, uh, in recognition of the, the order from the court. The other situation is that Social Security payments can be withheld in order to recover other private, I'm sorry, public debts, such as student loans or um, uh, federal housing authority uh, uh, overpayments and debts and things like that. But no, absolutely not for private debts that may have been incurred. All right, that's important to know. Just as always, Kurt, you do a wonderful job. That's been you've been listening, of course, to Talk Money, and my guest today, Kurt Zornowski, president and founder of Zornowski Consulting, and always a wonderful job, Kurt. You just you lay it out for us. We understand it when you explain it to us. So guess what? We have four more questions, and we'll call you back in a couple of weeks, and we'll get you back on the air. You always do a great job for us, man. Have a I think great it's week, States, Jim. I got you on the calendar. Talk All right, to you man. Then. Thank you, sir. All right. Bye-bye. All right. You know, again, it's wonderful to have him on the program, and he gets us down where we can understand some of the technical things. But as you know, this is Talk Money, and occasionally we step back away from the finances and the money and the questions, and we feature someone that's really having an impact in our city. So I want to welcome to the studios today from Neighborhood Christian Center, Effie Johnson, President and CEO of the Neighborhood Christian Center, and Kiki Hall, Director of Marketing. Guys, Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. All right, ladies, you are you are special to me and uh, just the history, but there is so much going on. And as I introduced you at the beginning of the show, I said that you guys are focused really on loving people and loving our city. Now, I want to go back and give everybody this mission statement. It's a powerful mission statement. And in my opinion, it's what sets you guys apart from a lot of things going on in the city. Guiding those in need towards stability, 
and sustainability through compassionate, Christ-centered ministries and empowerment programs. Effie, how did that? How did you come up with that? How did that develop? Well, you know, it's been an evolution of of um, wordsmithing. <laughs> well, I'm sure. <laughs> For sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Over the years, we've been, you know, always have had a heart to do exactly what um, is written there, um, and we've we've said it a lot of different ways, but it's always equal to love and um, and light in the community, and so that's how we we came to the um, summation that what we're doing every day. Uh, is about moving people towards sustainability, but we have to do it through love, through um, commitment, through uh, developing trust, and and um, helping people to see themselves. You say developing trust. You guys have got a long history. I mean, this is uh, this is not something that just started a couple of months ago or a couple of years ago. You've got a very long history. For our listening audience, set the stage. Tell us the history of the Neighborhood Christian Center. Well, well very briefly, um, before there was NCC, there was a Monroe and Joanne Ballard, and um, my parents uh, began to work in the community. Pretty just nice because, folks, by the way. Just, um, just let you know. <laughs> yeah, they I, You know, I mean, at first I was like, why y'all like them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, she makes me go to my room when I act up. And she stuff. was <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're, you're not supposed to like your parents when you're a teenager. <laughs> That's my girl now, I tell you. My father's gone on to be with the Lord, but um, before um, the NCC proper, my mom and dad would do a lot of work in the community. Uh, my mother came from Loosedale, Mississippi, my father from Madison, Mississippi. And they ended up here in Memphis and started serving um, the community, especially youth. And um, they raised over 75 youth in our home. Um, many of them stayed long term and uh, over 69 percent of them or so went to college and the others have gotten trade jobs. And so they've really invested um, their hearts and their their words into people. And um, God has just demonstrated through their work. And so over time, um, Neighborhood Christian Centers was birthed in 1978. This year we celebrate 40 years of of doing that kind of work and helping people to be empowered to live their best lives. And you're in in order to serve people, you've got not just one location. You're all over the city. We're, we're in many locations. Talk now. about that for a second. Just give me the idea of where you all are you located. Well, we have neighborhood-based locations in two different ways. We have site-based locations, which are in four um, Section 8 housing complexes, and then we have uh, the other three are standalone um, sites that are in the community where we uh, are ac- accessible to um, those that are living in those neighborhoods. Um, and so in our site-based service uh, locations, we have access and serve over 800 families every day that need need our help. And so um, we're there to work through um, the needs of the people um, and all the things that, that, are, that are going on just in those types of neighborhoods um, where people are challenged. And then in our, our standalone facilities, we have opportunities where people can access us for our food pantries, our clothes closets, our empowerment programs, our camps, after-school programs. We're there um, in various different ways every day for people. When we come back, I want to talk about what you're doing for the summer programs, but but here's a thought for you that I know, and, and people, if you're listening, this is not just a uh, handout type of organization. This is an organization, NCC, wants to give a hand up. They empower, they teach, they educate, they, they guide, they change the DNA of a person through Christian love, through sharing Christ, but also through just education, through really giving back to the community, not just, as I said, not just a handout, but a hand up. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Jim Shoemaker. I'm Talk Money. 
If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Although not everyone fell victim to the yellow fever epidemic that ravaged Memphis in 1878, the city itself did not survive. The picture at that time could hardly be described as anything but grim, as tax revenues fell sharply and the city's ability to pay off its debt grew uncontrollably. Despite stiff opposition from the mayor, a measure to disincorporate the city passed the state senate and house the following year. Memphis then ceased to exist as a chartered city and was made a taxing district under the authority of a council of nine members, only four of whom were popularly elected. Under the new administration, taxes were raised, the old debt was paid off, and the council began to fund badly needed improvements to the district. Yet, as the new life was beginning to return to the local economy, a shadow was cast over these improvements in the form of widespread corruption, embezzlement, and nepotism. Though such losses to the district's coffers were easily covered by strict fines on gambling, the ongoing problems in the district arrangement made it clear that such a system of local government could not last forever. In the following years, mayoral government was restored and Memphis became a prosperous city once again. This has been another Mid-South History Moment brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon as research or investment advice regarding any funds or stocks, nor should it be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell a security. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, you can see what kind of life I live under. That's called compliance. When you hear all those, uh, you can't do this and don't expect assessment in the market, Craig has to put all that in there and say, you know, it's just part of the life that I live. Every morning I get up and I have to walk down this little path and everybody checks my blood work and everything. I'm mean, just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it seems like it. It seems like it. My guest at this moment is from the neighborhood. They are from the Neighborhood Christian Center. Effie Johnson, President and CEO and Kiki Hall, Director of Marketing. Ladies, again, Kiki, I want to ask you this. When you when we talk about you know a handout, I'm not I'm not opposed to that. I mean, there are times, no question, there are times when you have to meet people's needs at that moment. Absolutely. And I know you guys, your doors are open. The church I go to, our doors are open. We need to have that ministry. That's a statement. That's a that's a foundational need. Period. Right. First okay. and foremost, you have to stabilize them Absolutely. by giving them just their basic needs. Whatever they need. Right. Absolutely. But then when you take it to the next level and you say, okay, I want to not only meet your need today, I want to meet your need three years from now. That's a hand up. And sure. that's what I like. Not a, just a handout, but a hand up. Talk to me about this thing called empowerment. That's a big word. Yes, definitely. We um, at Neighborhood Christian Centers, we our goal is to, again, going back to the mission statement, um, and that is to be, get people stable, but then uh, sustainable. So our, our ultimate goal is to break the cycle of poverty. There's a lot of misperception about people that live in poverty, uh, that they've chosen to be there, that they um, perpetuate this oh, they don't intentionally. Care. I mean, they I've don't heard care. people say, oh, exactly. if they wanted to, exactly. they could get it. But that's right. not but the think, case. No, but I think what's something that people need to understand is 
children that are raised in poverty don't know any different. They don't have that um, ability to, to dream and, and hope and see a different trajectory for their life. And so that's the great thing about Neighborhood Christian Centers is that not only are we showing them those kind of things, but we're helping to guide them in that direction too. And uh, all of our programs from the kindergarten Kindergartners all the way through adults, we have different programs in place to empower these uh, children and adults with either literacy, financial literacy, or work skills, life skills that they need to be able to go on a different path and hope and dream and um, live a better life. You mentioned the program. I think you said it was Learning with Lunch. Learning with Lunch. Learning with Lunch. Describe that. That is our kindergarten through fifth grade summer reading literacy program. And um, it is very focused on um, making sure that these kids are reading at or above grade level by the time school starts in August and they get assessed at the beginning of the summer so we can kind of see where they are and then through uh, reading and um, in small groups large groups where people are reading to them and they're being and they're reading aloud and then we have sight word assessments as well throughout the summer and we make sure we keep them on track and then of course learning with lunch another big component here is unfortunately during the summer it's very difficult for these families to afford the food that these growing kids need you know they're not in school where they're getting their their free lunch and breakfast programs in a lot of these schools so the the stress on the families financially to provide the right and the right amount of food for these kids is difficult so that is another big part of our summer programs for our K through 12th graders is making sure that they are getting, you know, at least two meals and a snack every day. You know, I have to admit, if you want to get the hair on the back of my neck to go up a little bit, just tell me, well, they can get out of poverty if they want to. That that bothers me. And I really get frustrated when I hear someone say that. I spent some time in the Czech Republic and in Bosnia and some of these, you know, when they were behind the Iron Curtain and just two generations of communism you could it oh. changed that DNA in that sure. generation, the sure. third generation. It just and you think about generations of living in poverty as you're talking about, right. and some of these. And help me with this, Effie. I mean, is it one, two, three generations? Did they were they at some point not in poverty and they slipped into poverty? Well, or are they there? And they well, where generation? are we in our current state? I would say many of those that are living in poverty, not situational poverty or situational um, situ- where people are poor. I, I Being got, poor is not bad. That's right. That's, uh, and that's so, a great point. I want you to explain that later. Because that's okay. a great point. All right. Uh, so, but being impoverished in mindset, being under-resourced, being underserved, and, and living and being born into situations of lack um, and having to, uh, your way of life is figuring out every day how you're going to survive or, 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 or move through the, to the next day. That's a different mindset. And so it perpetuates um, a... Um, a behavior um, that is not necessarily um, um, positive, or it can it can appear negative when it's really people trying to survive, just survive, trying to survive. And so, um, I would say we're in current our current state in Memphis is that many of the families we're serving are third, fourth, fifth generation um, being under welfare systems um, or the welfare system, and therefore it is perpetuated a. Um, a a mindset or an, a, um, a way of life that does not include getting a job. And I share with people all the time that many of the people that we serve can't afford to have a job because the things that they're receiving right. sometimes outweigh them actually earning the dollars to equate what they were, they were getting in child care or getting in food stamps or whatever. Does it make it right? No. But the challenge for people like us is how do we 
aid them in um, balancing and understanding what it means to earn your own living, uh, pay for those things for yourself, um, budget, all those things that, that all of us think are just easy to do. When you've never had that, how do you transition to it? It takes seven to 10 years to help a person move out of not just a physical poverty, but a mindset of poverty. That's a process. And so you have to meet people through that process, everywhere they are, every, every point of that process has to be uh, maneuvered and are, are they're unique as each person. We did a special program back in when we were celebrating uh, MLK Day. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that we looked at and saw that maybe we haven't, we've progressed some, but maybe we haven't progressed like we think we should have in this city. And again, it goes back to loving people and loving our right. city mm-hmm. and taking a, the, the necessary steps. And what you guys are doing by, by your mission statement is is really guiding those in need towards stability and sustainability. And I want to talk about guide because, <laughs> I, you know, I think about things a lot. But sometimes uh, sitting down and having moments like this, it helps me to really see what we do every day that we don't always Say, I got it. And um, or you're just doing I mean, where I come from, the culture of service and the family I come from, we did the work. We weren't trying to prove it. We were trying to do it. Um, and um, you all were always very humble about it. Well, that's, and so that's, that's why I was so excited. She hired me. Yeah, I said, now well, I can go around I, I and, 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 yeah, um, and brag on that. you. That's, critical. that's very critical. But I want to focus on guide because. All of us need guidance. We need. Um, I remember years ago when you had your your first book. I, I don't know how many books you've written, but That's I know. Okay. But um, I know the book that you wrote uh, when my parents became friends with you, and um, I was at your events, and you were. Um, I can't remember which hotels they were, but I thought that was the biggest thing <laughs> I'd ever seen, and you were guiding people in financial literacy. And how to invest and all those things. And I was a child. I had to be nine, ten years Don't old. Don't go there. And Don't I'm go just, there. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> she's she's only fifteen yeah, now. Right, right. That's right. Yeah. We're gonna take a break. You look good. <laughs> you look good. You like. Um, but but I'm, my point is is that the exposure that my parents gave me and and what you did in mentoring them in finances and all that those are guiding principles. That if and that was in one area, then my parents or others that influenced my life guided me in other areas. When we look at people that are in need, they're people just like us. They're 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 no different. We we not those people and our our neighbors. When our neighbors that have had lack of exposure and opportunity. need us to guide them. It means in every area, I have to be a surrogate, a surrogate family member, sometimes mom. Sometimes we have to have male influences. Sometimes we have to talk about hygiene. Uh, we have to talk about how to cook, how to sew, how to do things that you take for granted because we had a mom or dad or grandparent investing. How to raise your children. Yeah. How to, you know, and there might be, you know, differences in how we raise children culturally, but how do we influence our children for their best life? Mm-hmm. All of those things have to be done and they can and we're doing it within an eight hour period. We're not with them 24 hours a day. So our summer programs are, are you know, are working with um, life skills, making good choices. Um, how do you sit down and and, 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 edit, and have an etiquette? We have etiquette classes. I mean, we're we're doing everything that my parents did for me or your parents did for you in your home, but we're having to do it outside the home so they can take it back. 
Uh, that's the key right there. They can take it back. Take and, it back. And you're talking about a six, seven-year transition, right. a DNA change right. from right. someone. You mentioned something earlier. We're going to just skip the break, Greg. This is too important, and I just feel like this is what we need to be doing. So let, let's, I mean, you said, you know, because I think this is critical for our listeners. You mentioned poverty yes. and poor. And poor. And yeah. that's two different animals. Well, and this is not an original thought, of course, my mom is the one that shared. Well, let me tell you what, us. your mom's a hero. You know that. You know, she's and my she's, hero. So, But uh, your hero, your dad was my hero. So, yeah. But go ahead. But, you know, my mom shares it in this way that being poor is not taboo. Being poor is not bad. No. Um, people have been raised in poorness, but they were not imppoverished in mindset. The Lord said we were going to have the poor with us always. Right. And, and, it's just and, a, and but there's people nothing work. wrong with that. You can work. Um, and and make a decent living and take care of your children and raise them and they do well and they may go on and do even better than you and 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 own more homes, more cars, or invest more or whatever. But you had what you needed. Right. People that are living in poverty tend to be told what to do. Every step is is guided by someone else. Mm. Um, um, you're you're not making decisions. You're not working. You're not um, the one moving the needle for yourself. You're mm. being told what to do. And so, uh, and then from that you begin, there's desperation and poverty. Let me ask you this question because mm. desperation and poverty and that, and I need to do that because I really do. Yeah, I apologize. F- well, no, 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 don't apologize. You're just doing wonderful. This is, uh, you know, I'm just watching the clock and I'm trying yeah. to make sure because there's a couple of things. I want to talk about the neighborhood Christian sure. programs for this summer, yeah. but I also want to talk about how we can get some people to volunteer yes. and how we can raise money. But you mentioned this and I, I want to just kind of, kind of just step into this mindset for a little bit. Poverty in this city sometimes, and I'm setting you up, and I don't mean to do this, and please understand it's not intentional. We have a tendency, though, to sometimes take poverty and put it with race. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is not the case. No. How do we deal with How do would you want this, our listening audience to hear what Effie Johnson sees when I hear it, when I, because I know how you think, and I, mm-hmm. I think I do, and sometimes mm-hmm. I question that. I don't know how I think, gosh. <laughs> but, <laughs> Just try my best. <laughs> seriously, you know, how yeah. can we change that thought process? Well, I think part of the perception of why we think that in Memphis is because the majority of Memphians are African American right. or people of color. And so, in this city, there are more people of color that are impoverished. Okay. In this country, that's not necessarily right, true. Right. And so um, I think that if we and I was looking at Matthew, I think it's 29 that talks about uh, around verse 34. And forgive me, it might be Matthew 22 um, that speaks to Matthew 22, um, 20, 39. And a second. And he's talking about commandments here is that we shall love thy neighbor as thyself. So first we have to recognize who our neighbor is. Mm-hmm. It's not the little person next door. next door. It's whomever is in our in our our scope or our circle of um, relationship in Memphis. Memphis is our this is our neighbor. Anyone who lives this in the mid neighborhood. Well this is our neighborhood. Well, and literally, you know, a lot of these impoverished communities are literally in your across the street or in your backyard. Right. You know, and that's the thing that a lot of people if you really truly love your neighbor and, and you're trying to do good things for Memphis, realize that the folks that are living in poverty are your neighbors, literally. And we're only as great as those that are that we have to help to raise up as well. That's So we have to, if we're going to love our neighbors ourselves, I've, I am at fault every day of thinking about me more than other people. And every morning I have to get up and say, 
I have got to give myself away. That's right. And so that is, if we can wake up saying, what can I do for someone else today? It doesn't have to be everything. It doesn't have to be all the things. It has to be one thing. Mm. And as we continue to do that, we'll begin to love and see people through a different perspective. As Christians, we're to love God. Yes. Love people. Love people. That's it right there. Kiki, I got to ask you because we got three minutes. Summer neighborhood programs, what are they? You told me about lunch, uh, learning. We have learning with lunch lunch for elementary school kids. We have our YM Cubed program for our junior high kids. Uh, And they are, that's our multimedia ministry ministry summer program where they learn about, you know, Working as a team and producing something on this video. This is ages 13 to 15? Our middle school. Yeah, 12 to 15 about. 12, 15, okay. And then we have our college and arts for our ninth through 12th graders. And they get to take a college course. They're going to go on college tours. They're putting together a production to um, tour around and um, present this production. They're also learning financial literacy. Uh, they're going on field trips. I mean, they're getting to do a lot of great things to expose them to a lot of different um, opportunities in Memphis. You need volunteers? I mean, is this something you got just tons of thousands and millions of people coming in and just working? We do. We need volunteers to come and read to uh, all of our the four sites that are doing the Learning with Lunch. We need uh, volunteer readers every day to read to the kids and let the kids read to them. And um, and then, of course, we do. This year, we, we will probably touch up to 500 children um, in K through 12th grade, uh, which obviously is good that we have a higher demand, but that also means we have a higher demand for um, assistance. Yeah. So it costs about $50 a week per child to be in our summer programs on average. And All right, so, so $50 a week, you can get a check. You, you know, it's simple math. You know, yes. you give $100, that's two kids. It's $1,000, that's 20 kids. Yes, absolutely. So okay. You're so good with your math. Yes. Hey, hey, hey. That's yes. that finance guy right there. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> if you just tuned in, my guest, and I, I mean just special people, President and CEO of Neighborhood Christian Center, Effie Johnson and Kiki Hall, Director of Marketing. If you want to know more, <clears> you want to contact them about how you can be involved Maybe to write a check, you can, of course, always call Kiki. But let me give you a telephone number or an a, 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 a email number. Pam Cox, that's P-Cox, P-C-O-X, at N-C-C, life, L-I-F-E, dot O-R-G. Or call her at 881 excuse me, 881 That's Pam Cox, 6013-881-6013. Ladies, we have less than a minute. Thank you for being in the program. Tell me, Effie, how would you like for people to remember you? Love your neighbors as yourself. Um, remember that we're all in this together. We're not going to all get it right every time, but we can do right because the right is in us. We can do it. We can do it. That's right, <laughs> Kiki. Help us break the cycle of poverty by helping us uh, educate and empower these kids and adults that are in our communities. Guiding those in need towards stability and sustainability through compassionate, Christ-centered ministries and empowerment programs. That's NCC, the Neighborhood Christian Center. Effie Johnson, Kiki Hall. If you want to talk to them, you can just simply call Pam Cox, 881-6013, or just go to Peacocks at nccLife, L-I-F-E, uh, dot O-R-G. That's Peacocks at nccLife, dot O-R-G. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Thanks, ladies, for Thank being a part so of this program. Thank you so much for having us, Jim. Thank you. It's good to have you with us today, too. Uh, thank you for listening. You're listening, of course, to Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money.
Shoemaker Financial and Securian Financial Services are not affiliated with Effie Johnson, Kiki Hall, or the Neighborhood Christian Center. Jim Shoemaker is a registered representative and investment advisor representative of Securian Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. 